All right, so uh, I, got to, I got to be ordained on Friday, and it was, it was, it was, it was, like, it was like Thanos getting the, getting the Mind Stone <laughs> and the last, the final, the final stone in the gauntlet. It was, it was glorious. It's wonderful. No, I, I want to thank, I want to thank, thank, thank all of you. Um, Mosaic has been very much a, a home, a home for me uh, over the course of the last few years. Uh, you all have been a community, a community of love, and I, and I want to, I want to deeply, deeply thank each of you from the, from the bottom of my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply humbled to be, uh, to be able to say uh, now introduce myself as Malcolm, one of the, one of the pastors here, 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 at, here at Mosaic. It's, it's, it's humbling. All right, so I, I, I want to start, I want to start this morning with a, with a confession. There, there's, there's something that, that my wife Desiree is really, really good at that I am learning to do better, and it's this, asking good questions. I'm the I'm the introvert, and so when you hang out with me and Desiree, Desiree's usually the one who like keeps the conversation going, um, and, and and mostly it's because she asks really good questions. And for a long time, I accepted the common reading of the passage that we're going to talk about today: Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, because I never really asked the right questions about it. If you were around a few months ago, you 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 remember I, I had the opportunity to preach on the curse the curse on Canaan. And I tried to bring us along in understanding the ways in which sometimes an easy interpretation of Scripture isn't always the right one. Because of our cultural distance from the land of the Scriptures, there are so many things that we often miss. And there are few stories, I think, in the New Testament more misunderstood than this one. Because we tend to think about the Samaritan woman at the well as a spectacular sinner. And we love the stories of spectacular sinners. Some of us are from evangelical contexts where if you were really a Christian, you had, you had a really good testimony. If God didn't deliver you fully from your sin, from your addiction, from your whatever, you might be tempted to think, maybe my story isn't good enough because I'm not a spectacular sinner. Maybe I'm just a regular everyday sinner. Well, guess what? Spoiler alert. God has extravagant grace for you too not just the spectacular sinners. And if we read this text a little more closely, it might turn out that this unnamed Samaritan woman that Christ meets with at the well, maybe she isn't a spectacular sinner either. I got this as a, as a side note. Um, we, we have an issue when we see uh, uh, someone, ref- specifically women in scripture, that are referred to as sinful. We have this weird thing where we think it's a sexual thing. So, so, so in Luke, there's a, there's a, there's a reference to a sinful woman who, 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 who anoints, who anoints Jesus. And there, and, and, and there's this, and there's this assumption that I think we have that like the, her living a sinful life, that it refers to sexuality. She could be greedy. She could be rich. Like that could be, that's all right. Y'all, y'all ain't ready. That's all right. Okay. So. So that so, but but let's 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 walk through this text together. We're we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John, and so we're told in the first chapter that the Word of God was with was with God and is God. That He became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who we're going to follow over the course of this book. And when we see Jesus in His ministry, we're supposed to constantly remember, hey, this is the Creator of the universe walking amidst His people. In chapter two, Jesus did his first sign, changing water to wine and extending a party. Important detail, the servants knew how, but the others didn't. 
And that signals a theme that, that actually shows up throughout John's gospel and the whole Bible, that, that God cares about the marginalized especially. And so Jesus cares especially about the marginalized. So we, as God's people, ought to care especially about the marginalized. In chapter 3, we meet, Nic- we meet Nicodemus, a Jewish teacher of the law who Jesus told, you must be born again. And he didn't get it. Jesus wasn't especially kind to him, uh, which, is, which is interesting because Jesus is not very patient with religious leaders. Um, later, we get, we get a conversation with John where John draws attention to the fact that everything is about Jesus the Christ. But chapter four is, is, is I think, going to give us the closest look so far into Jesus' character and the nature of his ministry. So many of us think that the Samaritan woman at the well is an adulterous woman who the Lord rebukes and calls to repentance. But I, I'm going to suggest to you that, that that interpretation preaches a gospel that is too small. Let's find out what it really has to say. The title of this sermon is Hashtag Listen to Samaritan Women. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Yeah, sorry. Let me read you. There you go. Oh, maybe I muted you. Yeah, I muted you. Hello. Okay. All right, we're in John 4, 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than the father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. 
The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you are speaking to, I am he. The word of the Lord. So you may, you may notice that this is, this is like the first half of the story. So this is actually uh, part, part one of what's going to be two sermons. So it's actually hashtag listen to Samaritan women part, part one. Uh, okay. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, okay. Two movements, what the scripture says and why it matters. So first I'm going to run us through the narrative and, the, and, we're, and we're going to open it up. And then, and then we're going to consider what it means for those of us who know Christ and those of us who have yet to know Christ. So here's the, here's the traditional interpretation, big picture. So Jesus, in order to avoid controversy with the Pharisees, cuts through Samaria to get to Galilee. And in Samaria, he meets with a woman who comes to the well alone at the hottest part of the day because of her shame, but she meets Jesus. And they have a theological discussion, and Jesus tells her to go get her husband, at which point she reveals, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you've had, you, 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 you've had five, and the guy that you're with isn't your husband. Jesus confirms that, and she, embarrassed, changes the subject. And Jesus then, at the end, reveals to her that he's the Messiah. Now, roughly 60 to 70% of the details of that retelling are most likely false. So I want us to walk through it. So settle in, could be a bumpy ride. In the beginning of this chapter, Jesus learns that the Pharisees found, find out that his ministry is flourishing. And so he leaves Judea, the land of the Jews, to go to Galilee, the land of the Gentiles. Chapter four, verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. First point, he didn't have to go through Samaria. There's a, there's a door on that, on that side of the church, and the scripture saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee is like me saying that to get from that door to the front door of the church, I have to go through the church. I don't have to. I could walk around the church. And, and most Jews, if they went to Galilee, they went around Samaria. Sure, it took longer. Sure, you had to cross the Jordan twice in the journey, but anything was better than having to mix with those half-breed mongrels. Now, I use that uncomfortable language to really set in our bones the disdain that Samaritans faced. A later Jewish text, the, 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 the Talmud, would say this, that daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from birth. It's obviously untrue, but it points to the idea that Samaritan women are ceremonially unclean all the time. And everything that they touch is unclean as well. And the, reason that, and, and the reason that many Jews would give is that Samaritans are the consequence of Israelites mingling with non-Israelite people who moved in during the Assyrian conquest. This is in 2 Kings 17. But all that's really important to us, for, for us to know is that in Jewish public opinion, Samaritans are unclean. Here's a modern example. Jeff, Jeff Wiltz wrote a, wrote a history of pool desegregation called Contested Waters. He outlined the fact that starting in the mid-1950s, northern cities stopped building large resort pools, and, and, and they let the already constructed ones fall apart. 
Take a listen to this from, from Heather McGee. Over the next decade, 50s and 60s, millions of white Americans who once swam in public for free began to pay rather than swim for free with black people. Desegregation in the mid-50s coincided with a surge in backyard pools and membership-only swim clubs. Assumptions about uncleanness led to people inconveniencing themselves in order to avoid actually loving their neighbors. Happened in the 50s, happens in John 4, still happens today. So when you hear these things, those, are, those, those might be your first impulses and expectations. Samaritans are dirty. But not only is that ethnic prejudice, but it's also anti-biblical. If you look through the Gospels, individual Samaritans are actually almost never the, actual, the villains in the text. There's a, there's a village in Luke 9 of Samaritans that may be one exception, but the two, probably the two Samaritans that, you can, that, that you'll be able to think of from the Gospels are actually heroes of faith. One shows up in a parable that Jesus tells when, when he's asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells this story that we all commonly know as the Good Samaritan. There's another, there's another story when, when, when Jesus, is, Jesus heals these 10 lepers and they all leave and the only one that comes back to him to thank him is a Samaritan. Maybe, maybe our assumptions should be different. Maybe Samaritans aren't that bad. But we'll wait. Yet, so Jesus chooses to go through Samaria and when he does, he comes to a well in a very specific location, Sychar. Verse 5 says, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, if you're wondering what's significant about that, Joseph is buried in that field. So you can think that as this story is going on, there's another character, Joseph's bones. It's a weird detail for John to include. We're going to have to come back to that. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. Jesus, the creator of the universe, was tired because he's human. He was also thirsty because he's human. And at the sixth hour, a woman comes to draw water. Another myth to shatter. Noon is not the hottest day, the hottest time of the day, just factually. Like, it's the, it, it's the highest point of the sun, but it gets hotter as the day goes by. If you, if, you have, if you have young kids, it's why you don't go out with your baby in the Texas summer between three and five in the afternoon. Like that's, that's the actual hottest point of the day. But there's, a, there's, there's I think, a, a, a biblical interpretive complex that wants to build this case that this woman is extra shameful. So far, we don't know anything about her except that she's a Samaritan and she came to draw water. Like we don't even, it, there's nothing even that says that she's alone. There's just a particular woman that Jesus wants to talk to. Okay, so just, 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 just a thought. So let's keep reading. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She knows this is weird. He's, he's supposed to think that she's unclean. Why is he asking her to draw water for him from her vessel, much less talking to her in the first place? But Jesus continues to engage, telling her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, I, in, the, in the Gospel of John, sometimes Jesus is snarky. 
And it's hilarious when he's snarky. Jesus is not being mean or snarky here. He's guiding her to the truth. This is not the same tone that he, that he just took a chapter before with, with Nicodemus. Nicodemus saw himself as a leader. He was raised with the scriptures. He was supposed to know them. Jesus was actually pretty harsh with him saying, you're, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get it, but he's not, he's, not, he, he's not that way with the woman at the well. She continues in verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Listen to that inquisitiveness. She knows that what Jesus describes is what she needs. So she asked the right question. How do I get it? You might wonder why I'm walking through this so slowly. I want to drive deep into the minds of all of us. The Samaritan woman has done nothing wrong in this narrative so far. Also, like nobody knows that, like nobody knows who they're talking to when they talk to Jesus. No, nobody knows that he's the Christ. Even the, even the disciples who think they do don't really know what that means. The Samaritan woman at the well is asking all of the right questions, and Jesus is walking her through it. And so Jesus gives his first answer in verse thirteen. He says, "Everyone who drinks of this water, the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them." will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman responds in my translation, I'm down, give me that water. (laughs) Already we're in a much better position than Nicodemus, and I think we're supposed to keep that in mind. Because here comes, the turn, here, here, here comes what people think is the, is the turning point of the story. Because Jesus asks the woman to go get her husband. Now, this is where commentaries and church history get super sexist. So, for example, um, this, is, this is Cyril of, of Alexandria, a Greek, a Greek church father, and his commentary on this verse. Cyril has some wonderful stuff about the person of Christ, just like some of the best in church history. And then you get this. It would be correct and not untrue to say that the minds of women are effeminate, and a soft mind dwells in women which has no ability to understand quickly. The, The nature of men is more apt for learning and far more ready for reasoning, since it has a mind that is awakened for sobriety and, so to speak, burning and virile. For this reason, I think he told the woman to call her husband. Uh, Calvin, Calvin, when he read this text, he saw, he, in, in, in this first part of the conversation, he sees the woman treating Jesus with disdain. So, so, so Jesus' request for her husband is some kind of rebuke that's meant to be a conviction of sin. Others see this as a condescending, go get the man of the house comment. I don't think any of those interpretations actually fit the character of our Lord or the context of this text. She responds by saying, I have no husband, and Jesus confirms it, saying, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is your husband. You're right. Commentators continue to have a field day with this. I've seen sermon after sermon where this is summarized as evidence that the Samaritan woman is a spectacular sinner, a contentious probably adulterous wife, rightfully ashamed of her persistent sin. After all, how else do you have five husbands? It's actually a good question. Like, how do you have five five husbands? Many, when, when we approach this text, we assume that it's her fault that she has 
that she's, that she's had five husbands. But think about a woman in Samaria in the first century. To be a single woman is a recipe for disaster. It makes you one of the most vulnerable in society. It's actually much more likely that she's had five husbands either because they've treated her like garbage, and so they've left her, because you, can, you, could, you, could, you, you could hypothetically divorce your wife because you don't like her cooking one day. Or because people don't live that long, she could be outliving five husbands. She, and she wouldn't have to be that old to, out, to, outlive, to outlive five husbands. Maybe it's the case that the Samaritan woman is not a spectacular sinner. Perhaps she's a spectacular sufferer. Maybe we need to think about the assumptions that we bring to this text. Maybe we need to treat this woman with the dignity that Jesus clearly treats her with, engaging her, answering her questions. Maybe it's the case that this woman is trying to survive, and the men whom she's been with have taken advantage of her vulnerability, and she comes, in a, and she comes into contact with this Jewish man at Jacob's well, and she expects, oh, he's just going to be like the others, and instead he offers her eternal life. Do you, do you feel that? Do you, do you hear how Jesus' words themselves could be salves to her wounds? Water for her heart that's been parched in its search for someone to love her? Culturally, it's much more likely that she has been abandoned multiple times than that she, because of her sin, is some profound moral failure. Now that changes the way that this text is understood. And it also changes how we understand why she changes the subject from, from, from talk about water to talk about religious practice. Because, because here's, the, here's, the, here's the other thing. We think that the move to talk about mountains and worship and stuff is like, that it's a distraction because we, we, we don't understand how important that conversation is. That's what separates Jews and Samaritans, religious practice. Maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe it's not a deflection because of her shame. Maybe it's a deepening of the conversation because of her trust. Many commentators see this as a, as a dodge of Jesus' revelation of her sin. But, but she, she then tells Jesus, hey, what really separates us is religious practice. And Jesus responds and says, that's not going to matter for much longer. What she's doing is she's opening up to him in vulnerability because he's just revealed himself to be someone who's trustworthy. It's like how if you're, if you're, if you're struggling with something that you think is, is embarrassing and shameful, or like if you, have, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you and your spouse have, have marriage issues, you often don't want to go to your family or friends about it. You want a neutral third party. So it's, why, it's why therapy and counseling can be so helpful. I know it's been, it's been profoundly helpful for me. Because what Jesus does in recognizing her suffering is he reaches out with compassion, not, con not condemnation. He reaches out to hug her, not to rebuke her. See, because he, he wants to assure her that not only is he the source of, of, of true living water, but he's the source of true love and acceptance. Because when they, when they talk about worship, where, where Judean Jews focus on Jerusalem and Samaritans focus on Mount Gerizim, which would be visible from where they're, from where they're talking, Jesus shuts this all down in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Why? Because the sight of divine presence is not the temple or any mountain. God in the flesh is talking to her in that moment. 
And don't miss this. She's, she's the first person in this book that Jesus actually reveals his own identity to. In verse 25 and 26, she says that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus' response is, it's me. I'm the, the, the one speaking to you. I am he. Besides Jesus' trial, this is the only time in the gospel where Jesus is recorded saying that he's the Messiah. And he says it to a Samaritan woman. I want us to keep to keep in mind that one of the things that this narrative is driving is driving forward is that every moment of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman, which is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and an individual in the Bible. The fact that that's, the fact that that's true and the fact that, she, that she's the only one who he actually reveals himself to, this is a consistent affirmation of this woman's dignity over and over and over again. So let's recap. Common interpretation. Jesus comes to, comes to Jacob's well, meets a Samaritan woman who comes to the well alone. Remember, nothing in the text says that she's alone. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her about water, offering living water, and she says, sure, because according to some commentators, she's super thirsty, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, Jesus, Jesus then apparently reveals that thirst by asking her to get her husband, and he reveals there have been five Astonishing revelation of sinfulness. She's uncomfortable, changes the, relation, changes the conversation to religion, and then Jesus tells her that she's the Messiah. But, here's, but here's, what I'm, here's what I'm suggesting. That Jesus comes to this well, and regardless of who else might be around, he's focused on striking up a conversation with per, this particular woman. And he opens this conversation with an expression of his own need, which is absolutely wild because he's also God, and so he lacks nothing. But he's also human, so he's thirsty. And he then strikes up a deep conversation with this woman who he should have, according to cultural convention, regarded as a half-breed, unclean heretic. But instead, he makes her an offer. Remember verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity. I, 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 I imagine in this first conversation, Isaiah 44 is running through, the, through our Lord's mind when the prophet Isaiah said, Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will, and will take the name Israel. Gentiles will belong to the Lord. People who name Jacob as their father, as this woman does, Samaritans will belong to the Lord. Israel will belong to the Lord. How? The Lord will pour his spirit out upon them. Or, as Jesus says, he will put his spirit in them. Running, living water that quenches our thirst for eternity. And then Jesus adds a request that could be painful for this woman. Go get your husband. 
I imagine that once she heard that question, her heart may have sank. She may have thought, my husband? Well, I know the man who would claim to be my husband, but that relationship is one of abuse. I know the man who forces me into sex in exchange for safety and security, but I, I know the men who have treated me like less than human, but it seems wrong to call them husbands. Jesus responds, yeah, you're right. There have been five, even, even six such men. In that moment and in this conversation, Jesus reached out not with judgment, but with compassion. Not with rebuke, but with care. And this is precisely what some of us need in the midst of our suffering. I was at a conference a few weeks ago called Revoice. It's a number of LGBT plus Christians who, who identify as side B, meaning that they affirm that when it comes to sexuality, God's intention for us is, as scripture reveals, either celibacy or opposite sex marriage. And these siblings in Christ have been, in many ways, looked down on by the broader LGBT plus community for submitting themselves and their sexual desires to Christ in costly discipleship that many of their straight brothers and sisters fail to. And they've been looked down on by many theologically conservative churches being told the kind of language they should use to describe themselves. These brothers and sisters are used to being treated like sinners in need of rebuke rather than fellow image bearers. They're used to finding judgment in the church rather than kindness. If we really do believe what, 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 what the scriptures say, that the, that, the, that, the, that the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance, then we as the church ought to be the site of that kindness. But I, I, I imagine that this, may, that this may have been the Samaritan woman's experience as well. That rebuke and dehumanization were the waters that she swam in and drank. And Jesus had another path. The path of kindness and the path of listening. So he continues this conversation with her. A conversation that, as I said, is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and an individual. Why? Because Jesus is saying to this woman, you are worth me spending time with you. They discuss religious matters of worship because Jesus is saying to a woman used to being looked down on by her Jewish peers as a heretic, the day is coming when you'll neither worship on your mountain and they won't, and they won't in Jerusalem either. As a matter of fact, that day is not just coming, that day is here. He's telling her subtly here and explicitly in verse 26, I'm the one that you've been looking for. He tells you the same thing, dear brother, dear sister, especially if you're suffering. It's one of the most pervasive messages in scripture that God reaches out to the suffering, not with condemnation, but with compassion. To you who suffer, the son says, I offer you living water, a spring that never runs out, my spirit to comfort you, my people to come alongside you, my presence to surround you. Perhaps you're in the position of this woman having lived a life where you've been constantly degraded, maybe not in hugely traumatic ways, maybe, maybe in more subtle ways where it just piles up and you can get to a place where you wonder if anyone cares. Christ engages in this long conversation with this woman to say over and over again, you matter, your concern matters, your life matters, your dignity matters. I made you, I came to save you. And Christ says the same thing to you. Remember where that conversation takes place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman? At Jacob's well, near where Joseph is buried? 
When Joseph's life is summed up at the end of Genesis, being sold into slavery, being unjustly accused of sexual assault, going through trial after trial to get him to Egypt, where he can actually help his brothers, Joseph says, what, what you, my brothers, who sold me into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So also Christ says to you, what others have meant for evil, it's still evil, but I have the power to turn it into good for, the, for you and for those around you. But there are others of us who look at this woman and other people around us, not with compassion, but with judgment. I know, I've, I've did this for a very, very long time. Continue to do so in some cases. For some of us, our first impulse is victim blaming. What did he or she do to put herself in that, in that, in that condition? The Lord calls us to Christ-likeness. Compassion before rebuke, questions before answers, love before, before judgment, mercy before judgment. And this is hard, y'all. I mean, we've all, we've all got impulses when we see folks who suffer. John Chrysostom, another early church theologian, preached regularly about care for the poor. But here's a, here's a striking quote from a, from, a, from a sermon on Hebrews. If you see anyone in affliction, do not be curious to inquire further. His being in affliction gives him a just claim to your help. For if when you see a donkey choking, you lift him up without inquiring whose he is, you certainly ought not to be overcurious about a person. He is God's, whether he is a heathen or a Jew, since even if he's an unbeliever, still he needs help. That impulse is foreign to us. And it seems maybe, maybe it seems, maybe it seems unwise. But I think there might be a part of you that recognizes that he's right. He's we often find excuses not to love. Jesus wants to remove those obstacles. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't inquire further in order to help someone more. But it does mean that none of those questions that you ask get you out of your obligation to your fellow image bearer. So how? How and why would we do these things? Why seek Christ-likeness? Why care for the suffering, the poor, the marginalized, and the abused, especially when it can get really inconvenient for us? Why should we cultivate different impulses, seeking to lean toward compassion? The answer is simple, dear brother or dear sister. Because the creator of the universe, the word of God, took on flesh in a profound act of humility and self-emptying and lived a fully human life under the law. He lived a human life of obedience to his father, which meant a life that was poured out for many. Throughout this life, he, he continued to show everyone around him who God is, a God who loves the world in this way, that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Instead of leaving us in our sin, instead of leaving us in our misery, instead of rubbing our faces in it, as the hymn writer Horatio Spafford said, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Instead of sitting back in judgment, instead of looking condescendingly on you, the Lord stoops down and sheds his divine blood on your behalf. That's what happened on the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. On the cross, the Lord took your sin, and in his grace, he put it to death. He took your suffering, and in his grace, he put it to death. 
He took your pain and in his grace, he put it to death. And the call is to repent, believe in him, and to extend that grace and love to the world around us, to the neighborhoods in which we live, and to the systems in which we interact and shape. Next week, we're going to talk about the responses of the Samaritan woman's community and the response of the disciples. But the question now is, what is your response? Will you come to the Lord who reaches out a hand to you and offers you living water, a living spring that will never run dry, the marvelous gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Or will you resign yourself to a life of thirst? I assure you, dear brother and dear sister, if there is one gift that you will never regret taking, it is the gift of salvation offered by Christ. Come, all you who are suffering under great weights, and he will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray.